You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Congregation, let us turn now in our scriptures. First to Psalm 119. We could read the entire Psalm 119, but for the sake of time, we'll read just verses 105 to 120. We begin a study this afternoon on the Ten Commandments, summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism. And really, the first Lord's Day, Lord's Day 34, deals with uh, the nature of the commandments and the role that they should play. It's also the theme of Psalm 119. And Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem, which means, if you see in your Bible, if it's the same as the Bible I have, before verse 105... There's a Hebrew letter, and then it's written out, Nun. That's the letter N, which means every verse that we'll read would start with the letter N. And so it goes through the rest of the psalm. So we read Psalm 119, this poem, speaking about the law of God, beginning reading at verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet, and a light for my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept, O Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my refuge and my shield. I have put my hope in your word. Away from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commands of my God. Sustain me according to your promise, and I will live. Do not let my hopes be dashed. Uphold me, and I will be delivered. I will always have regard for your decrees. You reject all who stray from your decrees, for their deceitfulness is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your statutes. My flesh trembles in fear of you. I stand in awe of your laws. There is a reading from Psalm 119. We also turn to Exodus chapter 32. We're going to read the first eight verses, because the first commandment deals with idolatry. And from Exodus 32, we have a picture of what idolatry looks like. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf, and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. 
So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you have brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Congregation, our text this afternoon comes from Lord's Day 34. And this might be, I think, the longest Lord's Day, um, which contains the Ten Commandments. And since we read those this morning, we'll proceed to question 93, 94, and 95. How are these commandments divided? Into two parts. The first teaches us how to live in relation to God. The second, what duties we owe our neighbor. Question 94 asks, What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in Him alone, submit to Him with all humility and patience, expect all good from Him only in love, fear, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures, rather than do the least thing against his will. Question 95 asks, What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, If I asked the boys and girls this afternoon where the Ten Commandments are found, probably most of them who are school age would be able to tell me. These children probably also likely know that the Ten Commandments were first given to Moses on Mount Sinai after the Israelites left Egypt. But what was there before Moses went up Mount Sinai? If there were no Ten Commandments before then, Then how did Joseph know that adultery was wrong in Genesis? Or how did Shem and Japheth know to honor their father when Noah became drunk and the wicked son Ham mocked his father? How did they know that it would have been wrong to mock their father if the Ten Commandments hadn't been given yet to God's people? Well, the answer is that the Ten Commandments, or for that matter the whole entire law, didn't come first with Moses. With Moses, that is when the form of the law changed and that they were written down. The content of the law did not change and the content of the Ten Commandments is still the same as it was already back in Genesis and in the garden. It's important to know that difference or to notice the difference between the form of the law and the content of the law. The form of the law changed and can change. The content stays the same. How did Joseph know adultery was wrong? Because the law of God was written on his heart. Same thing with the sons of Noah. For all know the law of God. Beloved, there is a disturbing trend that's happening many places, but especially in the Netherlands. It surely happens here, but in Holland, 
Even Reformed Christians are partaking of this sinfulness. It's now expected in most places that when a young couple is involved in dating or a courtship relationship, that they live together for a period of time before they get married. It has become common practice in many places. Speaking with with Dutchmen who are living in Holland, many of them say, well, you know, what's what's the big deal? Times have changed. We're living in a modern society. This is how things work. But don't these people know that it's wrong? Sure they do. Of course they know it's wrong. Of course they know living in that situation is living in sin. But why doesn't it seem to bother them? Even for Christians in these countries. For non-Christians, they also know it's wrong. But for Christians especially. If not, when they were boys and girls, they were taught the Ten Commandments. Well, they know it's wrong because the law of God is written on their minds. They just don't care. They will likely never care until or only if God breaks through the hardness of their hearts and writes His law not only on their mind, but He writes His law on their hearts, the flesh of their heart by the Holy Spirit. For it is only then that the law can be of a benefit to such people. Otherwise, they're just rules. Hollow, empty rules, commandments, that Christians try to oppress the world with in this life. But beloved, they are much more than rules. They are the way of obedience. And therefore, the law of the Lord must be our delight. We must love God's law. And so this afternoon, we'll see that we're instructed in understanding the importance of the law. We are instructed in understanding the importance of the law. First, we'll see the nature of the law. Second, we'll see the place of the gospel. And third, we'll look finally at the first commandment. The nature of the law, the place of the gospel, and then thirdly, the first commandment. First is the nature of the law. It is extremely important to not only know what the Ten Commandments are, but also, boys and girls, why we have them and what they actually mean. We are now in the section of our catechism dealing with the Ten Commandments. And remember, we're in the third section of our catechism dealing with our sanctification or our gratitude or our thanksgiving. But before we plow headlong into these commands and the catechism's treatment of them, we would do well to take a step back and look at the law as a whole to see what role or what place does the law have in our lives. How important is the law to us? Why do we have it? Why must we keep it? Why must we teach it to our children? We must understand these things. So the first thing we need to remember about the law is that it was given to Israel. God showed showed His grace when He gave them His law which we'll see more in our second point. But the law was given specifically to Israel. It wasn't given to the Canaanites, not the Hittites, not Jebusites, not Girgashites. It was given to God's people, Israel. It was not intended to be a burden upon them. The same three uses we have for the law today, Israel also had. The first law being the use of the civil government. What law should they make? As a nation under God, well, they should follow the Ten Commandments. Our nation is also called to the same thing, though that fails miserably. In many ways, we know this. 
but yet this calling is still there. So that's kind of a a civil use of the law. The second and third uses of the law are more individual. The second use we oftentimes emphasize in the reading of the law in the morning worship service. It's to expose your sin. Essentially, the reading of the law in the second use is to make you feel uncomfortable in some way. It's to show that you have a problem, you have a need. The need is a savior because you're a sinner. And the third use of the law is how our how our catechism is treating it now since it's in the third part of the catechism. You realize we read the law at the same place every morning worship service, which is well and good. And it's important to keep that practice of reading the law. But what if you move the law to after the prayer of thanksgiving in the end? Well, if you would do that, you would be emphasizing the third use of the law, which means, therefore, how must you live? The Ten Commandments will tell you how you should live. And so our catechism emphasizes this third use of the law by treating the catech by treating the Ten Commandments in the third section. So the law was given to Israel specifically for those three uses. Secondly, concerning the nature of the law, is it has two tables. If you have your catechisms open, question 93 asks, how are these commandments, these Ten Commandments, divided? And the answer says, into two parts. The first teaches us how to live in relation to God. The second, what duties we owe our neighbor. So those are the two tables of the law, the first containing the first four commandments, the last containing commandments 5 to 10. This, of course, operates under the overarching notion that obedience to the entire law is essentially obedience to God. It's first and foremost to God. The third thing we must realize about the law is that the law of God touches, it reaches our whole entire life. There's no corner of our life which we can keep to ourselves and say, well, God's law says nothing about this part of my life. God's law says nothing about what I do on Friday or Saturday night or how I treat my employees or something like that. No, the the Ten Commandments and the entire law are very overarching, reaching all of our life. It is impossible to just break two of the Ten Commandments and keep the rest. For if we break one, We have broken the entire law. Oftentimes the illustration is used of a pane glass window. Some people view the Ten Commandments as ten panes of glass in a window. Boys and girls, you know what happens if you throw a rock in that window? It's going to break one of the ten panes of glass. So therefore, you're just breaking one commandment. But that's not true. The law is one it's like a picture window, the big window in the front of a home. You know what happens if you throw a rock at a picture window, which you should never do, boys and girls? If you throw a rock at the picture window, the whole entire thing comes shattering down to the ground. And so it is with God's law. If you transgress one commandment, well, you might think one little sin, you have broken all of God's law, and essentially you have rebelled against Him. We must keep this in mind with our sin. The first commandment is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you sin once, you fail at meeting that commandment. A fourth thing we must remember about the law is that God didn't just make it up. It doesn't just come out of seemingly nowhere in Exodus 20. 
It existed every day that man lived and walked on the earth. Why? Because God's law is an expression of His being. And power and holiness. We learn much about God when we read the Ten Commandments. We learn that He is both gracious, as we'll see in our second point, but also that He is a jealous God. He has a high standard for us. He doesn't lower that standard and say, well, you know, you can just do your best and I'll accept that as fine, meeting the requirements of my law. No, God's standard does not change and it is placed extremely high. The fifth thing, fifth thing concerning the nature of the law is that the commandments that are given are the most extreme examples of a specific sin. Take, for instance, the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. That's the most extreme. But also included in the command, thou shalt not murder, is included, you also shall not hate. You shall not hate your brother or sister. All of these things are included under the sixth commandment. So what we might think are minor offenses, smaller sins, or lesser transgressions of the law, as a matter of fact, according to the word of God and our catechism, is a transgression of the entire commandment and therefore the law of God. And so it goes with the other commandments as well. We are given the example in the Ten Commandments of the most extreme cases. The sixth thing under the nature of the law is that each commandment has both a positive and negative aspect. We are prohibited from something and required to do something else. That's why in Romans 7 when the Apostle says, I don't do that which I should do, that's the positive command. Do this. He says he doesn't do it. And the things which he shouldn't do, that's what he ends up doing. So when it says do not murder, he ends up murdering. And when it says love your neighbor, he ends up not loving his neighbor. And so it is. When the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal, well, that's the negative. What's the positive? Work. Work so that you can help others who are in need. You shall not commit adultery. What should you do? You should love your wife. Only your wife and no other woman. And so it goes. There is both a positive and negative aspect. And then finally, concerning the nature of the law, it is to be a delight to the children of God. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Psalm 119 is a psalm that points out the blessedness of the law. Verse 1 says of Psalm 119, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. And then in verse 113 we read, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Now how can the psalmist say that he loves the law? After all, the law is very restrictive. After all, doesn't the law function like putting us in a straitjacket? We're all wrapped up, we can't get out, we can't move, we can't go to the left or to the right. The law binds us. Isn't that how the law works? No, not at all. In fact, the law is liberation. It is the only hope of liberation. You know who was bound in a straitjacket? Sinners. Why? Because of Adam and Eve. We're born in a straitjacket. The law finally liberates us. The law is liberating. The law shows us the way of obedience. People without God and without His law written upon their hearts are in bondage to sin. But through God's grace comes liberation to serve Him, which we see secondly in the place of the Gospel. 
Turn in your Bibles, if you have them open, to Exodus 20. Exodus 20, look at verses 1 and 2. We hear this every week, or from Deuteronomy 5, but we hear the law every week, and we hear this every week. It's important to understand what we are hearing. Exodus 20, verse 1 says, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You see the gospel there? See the gospel in Exodus 20, verse 2? I mentioned it this morning, that the law is given in the context of the covenant of grace. God had brought His people out of Egypt. They had been delivered from living lives of slavery. Conditions for the Israelites had worsened. In fact, when when Moses comes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh gets angry, his heart is hardened, and he makes it even worse for the Israelites. He says, I'm going to take their straw away. They have to find their own straw to make bricks. The people were oppressed, but God delivered them. That deliverance is a picture then, carried throughout all of Scripture. Time and time again, doesn't he remind the people? But I brought you out of the land of Egypt. But that picture, that deliverance, is a picture of what would come. It never stops with Egypt. Egypt actually isn't all that important when you put it into perspective. The deliverance from Egypt points to the deliverance with Jesus Christ. That's how the Gospel is contained in, in the Ten Commandments. Because Jesus Christ guides us to a new obedience. We don't read the law like unbelievers. We read it as God's people. God delivered the Israelites from Egypt just as He has delivered His people from their sins. And you might think, but were we really slaves to our sin? Well, you had better believe it. Ephesians 2 says that you were. says that you were dead. Even worse than being a slave, you're dead in your trespasses and your sins. In Romans 7, Paul says that sin can rule you if you allow it, but it has no power if you are ruled by Christ. The law is all pointing forward to Christ. No godly Israelite Notice I put the word godly there. Pharisees misunderstood the law. No godly Israelite ever thought that they could keep the law and that it would save them. In Romans 3.23, Paul says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So there's a serious problem. Because you're sinners. We're sinners and the wages of sin is death. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we have a problem. Well, what's the solution? The only solution is for perfection. For obedience and following the law. However, you can't do it. You can't keep the law. But Christ can. And Christ did. Christ has done it. And He gives that to us through faith. If we're going to study the Ten Commandments in the third part of the Catechism, I will have to remind you that we can only do so because, I'm assuming you follow the Lord's Days consecutively here, because you've been through the second part of the Catechism. Don't skip to the third part of the Catechism from the first. Read the second before you read the third. Otherwise, you're going to be trying to follow the law without having first heard 
of the deliverance. Who cares about trying to keep the Ten Commandments if you're still living in unbelief? What is the point then? Is it to merit salvation, to earn something before God? Well, beloved, we know better than that. We understand that in the third section, we are moving from the second, which pointed to Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. Through faith in Him, we are justified by faith alone, by the grace of God alone. We know this because the Word of God alone teaches us this. Is this not what the Reformation had recaptured? See, we can't hope to live a sanctified life before we receive grace. It won't happen. We cannot look at the law without first seeing grace. And this is what so many Christians misunderstand about the law. Why do you think so many evangelical churches have nothing to do with the Ten Commandments? Actually, the Ten Commandments aren't that popular today. Churches aren't saying, you know what we need more of? We need more of the Ten Commandments. No, churches are going the other way. They're getting rid of the reading of the law. It's because they don't understand the law. The law is gracious. There is not this huge distinction that the law is over here and the gospel's over here. We see it right here in Exodus 20. The gospel's in the law. And that says God's people how we must read and understand the law. But why is this so important? Okay, what's the big deal? This is extremely important. This might be one of the most important things you must understand as parents. As parents. Or as teachers. Or those involved in the raising of of young people. Parents, never teach your children right and wrong without teaching them at the same time why we do these things as Christians. As Christians. It might not be as big of a deal when they're little kids. and You correct them, you tell them, no, you can't touch that or you can't touch that. But when they grow up, oh, when they grow up, if you have not taught them rightly, it will wreak havoc in their lives. If you want rebellious children, teach them the law without ever mentioning the gospel. If you want children who don't have any desire to live a pious or a holy life, do the opposite. Teach them the gospel without teaching them the law. It is so important to see the relationship between these two. This is like speaking both to the head and to the heart. So we say young people live this way. Young people be home at this time on Saturday night. Why? Because you have to prepare for worship on Sunday morning. Or be careful how you live, how you speak to women, young men, or how you speak to men, young women. These things are important. But why? But why? Don't make duty or necessity the number one motivator for obedience. But do what our catechism does. Make gratitude or thankfulness. Why do we have to live this way? Because we're thankful. Our lives are lived in light of the deliverance. Our whole lives are lives of gratitude. And so this is also what we must teach our children. We must teach them the law and the gospel. So let us look now in our third point, beloved, at the first commandment. Question answer 94. The first commandment, though the shortest in the first table of the law, is not the least important in any way. The commandment simply is, you shall have no other gods before me. So the catechism explains to us what is required in this commandment. 
It answers there in answer 94, that for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. This is an interesting list of things that we are to avoid and flee. And the first thing is all idolatry. This is the sin the Israelites were guilty of in Exodus 32, which we read. Even though their intentions might have been noble, you do realize that the Israelites in Exodus 32 wanted to serve the God who had brought them out of Egypt. Their problem was, was that they thought this God could be pictured in a golden calf. They knew the golden calf was not the God, but they wanted to use the golden calf and worship God through it. Sound familiar? Yes, this plagued the Roman Catholic Church, and in many ways still plagues the Roman Catholic Church. This is a form of idolatry. The true God is spirit, and he is living. His people must worship him in spirit and in truth, just as our Lord Jesus Christ told the Samaritan woman, woman at the well. But this also is what is so amazing about the first plague, turning the Nile into blood. The Nile was a god. It was worshipped by the people of Egypt. God showed them that they must worship the Creator, not the creature, not the creation. And hasn't our society fallen to the sin of the Egyptians? They worship the creation. They worship animals. They worship themselves. They worship money. Isn't money the God it has always been? And now our society is continuing to delve into the New Age movement, affecting magic, among other things. Our communication with the world unseen must be with God alone. And this is what our catechism is getting at. We must not try to communicate with those who have already died, not with demons, not with angels, but with God. That is the negative. The positive is that we acknowledge the only true God, that we trust Him alone. Our catechism says that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in Him alone, submit to Him with all humility and patience, expect all good from Him only in love, fear, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against His will. So what's our catechism actually getting at here, congregation? Make God number one in your life. Not number two, not number three, not even a side or side by side with number one, which usually is ourselves. That's what sin leads us to. That's, that's what we must fight against in this life. That we must love Him with our whole beings. We fear Him as the sovereign and righteous judge. We honor Him as King. It's not just about knowing God. Rather, knowing about God, that's important. But rather, knowing God, trusting in Him alone. We need nothing else in this world except the love of God. All things will pass away, but God is steadfast and sure. When we love God, that means we desire to do His will. Our catechism even says that we must be willing to give up anything and go against His will. May God impress this upon our hearts. And then finally, our catechism asks us, what is idolatry? Idolatry can take shape 
In trusting something, we worship God through what the Israelites did. We can do this with a crucifix, with a picture. We make it idolatry by what we do with these things. As Scripture tells us time and again, we worship, or rather we trade the worship of the true God for the false. This is exactly what the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. They traded the worship of the true God for the worship of a golden calf. Exodus 32 can almost be equated with an early form of Hinduism as they view cows as divine or divine calves. But notice as well, beloved, the answer ends with this phrase. The only true God who has revealed himself in his word. This means we don't need anything else. We don't need pictures of God. We don't need movies depicting God. All we need is God's word. This is how he chose in his wisdom to reveal himself in the Bible. We don't need to look elsewhere. For the word of God becomes the glasses, the spectacles through which we view the entire creation. It's our book of discernment. When things happen in our life, we go to the word of God to discern them. When we're reading something, we discern it with the word of God. When we watch a movie, we hold it to the standard of God's law, as is breaking the commandments of God. And so we view the entire creation, our entire lives, through the spectacles of God's word. Congregation, our God, the only true God, shows us His grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, He is indeed our Deliverer and Redeemer. He reminds us in the law that we were slaves in Egypt. But yet He brought us out from there with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. And just as He brought us out of Egypt, even more so spiritually, God delivers us from our sin and misery. He is gracious to give us His law. So may He continue to be gracious with us as God's people, as a community of believers. But as we walk through this world, as we strive to please Him, may He continue to write that law upon our hearts and grant us a desire, a longing to live our lives in service to Him alone. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.